Good morning. Thank you, Barb, uh, for the songs you've chosen. Beautiful, beautiful, powerful words, powerful truths, um, fit beautifully with the themes that we're getting into today. Thank you. It's been a good time of worship already this morning. As we head into the sermon, I want to open up in prayer. God, thank you that you are here with us. Thank you that you communicate with us, that by your word, that by your spirit, we can know you. We can know who you are. We can speak and sing truths about your character. We can understand who it is um, that walks with us. We can understand who holds us. That we can rest in that, secure in the promises you have given us. Thank you for the gift of your word. As we dig into it, help our hearts and our eyes to be open to what you want to teach us. Help us to be formed by this. In your name, amen. So we are continuing on in a series that's going to take us through the fall. And actually, uh, how about this to make it feel like time is moving fast? This is a seven-week series but when we are done this series, we are launching into Advent. <laughs> Welcome to October. Time moves fast. Darren uh, opened up the series last week looking at the first uh, uh, I am statement that Jesus makes in John. And he kind of introduced the, the concept of this series, uh, talking about the purpose of John's gospel, that John wrote uh, the Gospel of John, uh, years after most of the other New Testament was written. It was one of the last books, if not the last book, in the New Testament to be written. And so John has had a chance, has had many years, to see the early church develop and to kind of get its footing and to begin to sort of find structure. And he recognizes, as this new church is starting, uh, and is almost a generation in by now, that there is a need to have a story of Jesus told with a special emphasis on the character and person of Jesus, on who Jesus is. And one of the ways that he does this through his book is he intentionally records these moments, these seven moments where Jesus makes uh, declarative statements about himself. He takes these ideas or images or word pictures to tell people about who he is, what his character is. Every once in a while, I sort of have to pause uh, to take this in again. The Bible, of course, in its entirety is God-breathed. We believe the Bible is a divinely inspired tool that we have that tells us who God is and who we are and what our relationship is to him and to the people around us. So I don't want to uh, downplay other parts of Scripture. The Bible in its whole is this. But there is something incredible about these Moments. It stops me in my tracks when I really think about it, that this is God speaking about himself in his own words. The creator of the universe talking about who he is. It's an amazing thing. It's an amazing gift that we have, these seven statements. So these are the statements that we're going through. I am the bread of life. Darren covered that last week. I am the light of the world. That's what we're covering today. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. These seven statements tell us different aspects or pieces of who Jesus is, of his purpose, 
of his nature. And so it's an incredibly special thing. It's a valuable thing to walk through this together with you and get a clearer picture of who Jesus is, who he was then and who he is to us now in this moment here today. I want to start today by introducing you uh, to my buddy, John. John Friesen is his name. Not a John Friesen from around here. John was born in Chihuahua, Mexico. He grew up in Ontario where he lives today. For about the last 13 years, John's been the CEO of the Muskoka Bible Center in Ontario and heavily involved in retreat ministry in his area and also across Canada. Him and his wife Lisa live on a farmyard there. They've been married for 32 years. They've got a couple of dogs. They've got five kids and a granddaughter. They make great use of their yard. They're good hosts. They enjoy having family and friends over. Just a couple of weeks ago, they celebrated his mom's birthday. She turned 94 this year. John and Lisa love connecting with their granddaughter, Kisa. They also regularly host international students in their home. Right now, they've got a young lady from Japan named Sei living with them. They've been showing her around the area. In John's devotional life, he's reading through the classic, My Utmost for His Highest by Oswald Chambers. He's really enjoying the book, getting a lot of good truth out of it. John's also getting into motorcycles. He admits it might be a bit of a midlife crisis thing, but he's very excited to have recently gotten his license, purchased a Kawasaki, a KLR650, which he calls Pig. And he's taken it around southern Ontario on several trips this summer. He's had a busy summer, working with the Bible Centre, connecting with other missions groups and organizations. Something else important about John happens to have the most common name in this province and area, and when I typed it into Facebook, he's the one that popped up and didn't have his information locked. I've never met John. I didn't know John existed until yesterday. John seems like a great guy, though. I enjoyed learning about him. I'll also give a disclaimer that I could have easily gotten some details about his life wrong. I just scrolled down his Facebook page for a while. Try to get a sense of who this guy is. Now that I've learned some things about him, I'd love to sit down for coffee with John. I could ask him about Kisa and how the Kawasaki is treating him and what he's picked up from his devotions recently. And that would probably be a very uncomfortable conversation for John. Because although I know all about John, or some about John at least, I know facts about his life, I don't know John at all. Those are two completely different things. I could read John's whole life story, but unless I sit down with him, have a cup of coffee, build a relationship, talk back and forth with him, I don't really know him, do I? I'm sure some of you have gotten ahead of me on this. The world knows a lot about Jesus. People here know a lot about Jesus. People in this room, many of us, know a lot about Jesus. Darren mentioned last week, there's not a lot of debate about the existence of a historical Jesus. Christian or not, historians, archaeologists generally agree. There was a Jewish man named Jesus who was a teacher, gathered a following, ticked off the religious establishment, was crucified. We know facts about him. We've heard stories about him. We have beliefs about him. But if we don't know him, if we haven't stepped into active relationship with him, then we are missing out on what he came to bring us, on the life that he offers, 
on the message and the power of the gospel. Last week, Darren talked about bread. And you can see bread, you can touch it, you can smell it, you can understand how it was baked, you can know what the ingredients are, but if you don't actually take a slice of it and eat it, the bread's got no value to you. No matter how good it looks or smells, no matter how much time you spend in the room with it, you have to actually take a bite in order to receive life from it. I give that introduction because as we continue on in this series, this is my prayer. Each of these statements that Jesus makes, I'm the bread of life, I'm the light of the world, I'm the good shepherd, I'm the resurrection and the life, I am the way, the truth, and the life, I am the true vine. These are invitations from Jesus to step past what others have to say, what we think we might know, and enter into relationship with God. This is God speaking truth about himself in his own words, telling us what he is like, who he is. And so these truths are an invitation to step past the surface, to dive into real relationship, to actually know, to partake, to engage. And so my hope is through this series, at the end of these messages, one question you're consistently asking yourself, you're prayerfully considering, is not just what did I learn about Jesus, not just what do I know about Jesus, but how do these statements, these truths, God talking about himself in this way, help me to know Jesus better. So with that, let's get into the scripture for today. We're looking at John 8. We'll read verses 12 to 14. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Pharisees challenged him. Here you are appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. Jesus answered, Even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you have no idea where I come from or where I'm going. So my first question out of this is, what got these Pharisees so upset as Jesus spoke here? I'm sure I've said things from the pulpit that have raised your eyebrows once or twice, made a statement that wasn't correct, but I have never had anybody jump up in the middle of a sermon and say, stop talking! You're a liar! You have been very generous with me. In fact, I once did a sermon series on Philippians where I had Philippians spelled wrong on the title slide for two weeks. No one corrected me on it. But here Jesus is speaking, and in the middle of this thought, the Pharisees cut in. You're lying! That is an awkward situation. Clearly something has got them riled up. So what is it about this statement that so aggravates the religious leaders? It's one of those situations where, where the, the, the cultural distance between our time and the time of Jesus can sometimes make it difficult to catch the full weight of what is happening here. But light is a deep and consistent image in the Bible that is associated with God. Uh, the Mums Group is actually going through a book this fall. It's called Habits of the Household. And when Erin heard the topic theme, she showed me a paragraph from the chapter that they're covering this week. This is what the author writes. The metaphor of light runs throughout Scripture. Light is what happens when God speaks in Genesis. Light is what surrounds things whenever God shows up to someone or in the Old Testament. 
Light is what falls on the psalmist's path when God speaks his words. Light of the world is the central metaphor for who Jesus is. Light is what blinds Paul. Light is what lets him see again. Light is what Paul can't stop writing about in his letters. And of course, light is where the Bible ends with God himself lighting up the world. They will have heard light and they will have understood God. They will have recognized this connection. And probably the first place they will have gone to, it's chronologically appropriate anyways, is right to the beginning, (laughs) to Genesis 1, where there is nothing except for God himself. Um, And, well, let's read. Let's read from Genesis 1 here. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. There are three words used there, formless, empty, dark. And in the midst of this chaos and nothingness, God speaks and says, let there be light. And so in this divine act of creation, in bringing in life, God begins the process of forming what was unformed, of filling what was empty, and of bringing light into the darkness. Jesus, in making this statement, not the statement, by the way, that he was a light in the world, or not even that he was a light in the world, both of probably which would have been received differently, but that he was the light of the world, that he was the source of light itself, that through him people would receive the light of life, that will have been what insulted these Pharisees in this moment. Jesus is making the profound claim that I alone take what is formless and give it form. I alone take what is dark and bring light. I alone take what is empty and fill it. So you can begin to understand why this will have seemed such an extreme statement to the Pharisees. Isaiah talks about the coming Messiah in terms that line up with this. In Isaiah 9-2, gives us a beautiful promise. We think of this as a Christmas verse. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the shadow of death, upon them a light has dawned. Matthew actually uses that exact verse to speak about Jesus' ministry as a promise that he fulfills in his coming. John in Revelation 21 says, on, on that day... He's speaking about new creation, eternity with God. On that day, they will no longer need the sun or the moon, for the glory of God will be their light. Jesus, John is saying, is a better source of light. He illuminates better. He illuminates more truly, more clearly than the sun or the moon or the stars can do. Jesus looks at the Pharisees and says, you don't know where I'm coming from. You don't know where I'm going. You're walking in darkness. Only I am the light. John also reflects this truth in his intro to the gospel, doesn't he? He says in John chapter 1, In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. And later, the true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. John was convinced, as the other gospel writers were, that Jesus was the true light of the world. And to help us understand what that means for us today, I want to take a look at exactly what Genesis has to say about what light accomplishes. Light forms us, it brings us out of darkness, it fills us. 
First, Jesus as the light of the world is a part of our forming. He takes us from formless to formed. Why are we here? What is our purpose in life? Curious if anyone's brave enough to shout out answers. Why do we exist? What was that? I think there's lots of good answers to the question. I've put you very much on the spot here. But if I was kind of put, did you look like you want to know? You're good. Okay. Oh, sure. Well, no, it's one of those things. It's an important question. You want to get the answer right. I think if I was put on the spot and told I need to answer that question in five seconds, what would come to my mind would be we're put on this earth to love God and to love people. I think that would be what I would say. I think there's a variety of answers that could be good and true answers to that question. Uh, But I'm not sure if any of you are familiar with uh, uh, catechisms, the concept of a catechism. Uh, Catechisms are are documents that are used uh, in many Christian traditions. Certainly the Catholics have a catechism. Many Protestant groups do as well. A document that is designed to teach people, often children, especially children, about faith. And it's sort of, they're set up as uh, a conversation, a series of questions and answers that walk through the big building blocks of faith and theology and how we think about the world and God. Questions like, who is God? And how is the world created? And what is sin? And how can we be saved? These sorts of things. Uh, So the Westminster Catechism is one of many that are out there. It's about 500 years old. And the first question in the Westminster Catechism is, what is the chief end of man? To put it in plain words, why are we here? What's our purpose? The answer the Westminster Catechism gives is, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. It's a beautiful answer to that question. All of our answers, though, I think are going to come back in some way to connection with God. So here's what's true. If we live our lives disconnected from God, if it's not a part of how we're living, then we're missing out on the purpose for which we were created, the reason we exist. We're formless then, right? We're not achieving what the thing that we're meant to achieve. Or, or if we are formed, it is by things that were never meant to form us. Instead of turning us into what we are meant to be, it distorts and twists us into things we were not built for. The other piece of this is that if we are in relationship with God, if we walk with Jesus, we are being constantly formed. Slowly but surely, through the highs and the lows, you can be sure, you can rest in the promise and the truth that we are being formed. The theological word for that, the big church word, is sanctified. We are being made holy as the Holy Spirit works within us. It's not as fast as we would like. It would be wonderful if when we became Christians, that switch just flipped and we instantly transformed but it's not how it works. Maybe it's why born again is an appropriate analogy. When you are born, you are at first totally incapable, right? You're a bunch of cartilage and drool. But day by day, as you grow, you, you form. You learn to roll, and then you learn to sit up, and then you learn to crawl, and then to stand, and then to run. It doesn't happen all at once. It takes place over years. But it's always happening. There's growth there. 
Anyone who's taken an instrument lesson or has had to master difficult tasks in their lives or careers or has gone through school, they know this. Day by day, it takes forever. And yet, when you look at the journey, you see how in each moment, you were slowly transforming and growing and changing. When we are in the light, we are formed. I love what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18, that we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord. The ESV says that we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. It's this slow, steady transformation. Not straight from dark to glory, but from one degree to another. Step by step, moment by moment, we are being formed. We are being taken from formless to formed. Second, we are being brought from darkness into light. The Bible doesn't mince words about the fact that apart from Christ, people walk in a sort of spiritual blindness, unable to see properly. It's only in Christ's light that our eyes can be opened to the reality of what is around us. I remember as a kid growing up in our house, for most of my life we lived in a two-story house on Valerie Lane in Steinbach. And this house, of course, had a basement. We kept many of our toys and books and things in the basement in a room that required you to go down the stairs, walk across the main part of the basement, and then walk down what felt like a very long hallway to get to a room at the end. And the light switch for the hallway in that room was at the far end of the hallway. And to make matters worse, my parents had this rug, a beautiful rug of a majestic tiger that always felt like it was looking right at you. And this rug was hanging on the wall at the end of that hallway. As I think about it now, it almost seems like they did this on purpose to mess with us kids. It was right there at the end of this hallway. And the side doors in this hallway opened up into our furnace room with all sorts of strange rumbling and creaking noises. And so here we would stand at the end of this hallway, staring down into the blackness, just able to make out the shining eyes of this tiger perched at the other end, ready to pounce, and we would be forced to walk through the darkness in order to get to that light switch at the end. And I remember having to amp myself up to go into the brightest corner of the room that I was in and sort of charge up and then sort of run while I was still in the brightness of the room and hope that that momentum would kind of carry me down through the hallway until I could get to the end and sort of flail toward that switch and turn the light on. And as soon as the light was on, in an instant, I was safe. It all made sense. The rug was just a rug. Here were my toys and books. What was I ever afraid of? But every time I stood at the end of that hallway and saw that tiger staring me down, I had this deep fear in my heart and this uncertainty. The dark can twist things. The dark can make things feel bigger and more dangerous than they are. John describes Jesus as the one in whom there is no darkness at all. It's a beautiful promise. There is safety in light. There is security in light. There is truth in light. In the dark, shadows can seem larger and scarier. Things can be confusing and disorienting. Even if we think we know where things are, we can be wrong. All of us who have stubbed toes and shins on beds and corner tables in dark rooms know this. You can be confident, but in the dark, you don't always know where things are. 
but in the light all is revealed. It's a beautiful thing. It's a little bit of a scary thing, too, in some ways. There's nowhere we can hide from a God who is light. David deals with this in Psalm 139. It's this beautiful psalm of assurance, but to me there's always been some discomfort in there as well. If I say, David says, surely the darkness will hide me and light become night around me. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night will shine like day, for the darkness is as light to you. It's a beautiful promise, but it's a little bit unsettling, right? No matter how good you are, no matter how confident you are, how hard you try, it is still a little bit terrifying to know that God sees it all. Every thought, every deed, everything you've searched, everything you've said, everything you wanted to say but didn't, Nothing's hidden. All is exposed in the light, in the true light. One of the most dangerous things we can try to do as Christians is live in the dark. One of the biggest lies that the enemy has for us is that we're better off hiding our sin. That if we're careful enough or sneaky enough or subtle enough, we can pretend like it doesn't exist. We can fool people. Maybe if we're careful enough, we can fool God. When we live in sin and when we lie, we are twisting ourselves into something we were never meant to be. We're giving up our true purpose. When we live with deception in our hearts and secret sin, there are actually really only three options for how it plays out. Option number one is we confess. We confess to God, ideally also to people that we trust in our lives, certainly to those who we've hurt if the sin is against them. It may not be easy, it may be hard, it may hurt, it will absolutely be embarrassing, but it's what God calls us to. Confession and repentance are at the core of what Jesus has called us to, of what he has done for us. Option number two is that by God's grace we get caught. Sometimes we aren't ready or able to confess. We're too caught up in it, but we're exposed in that sin anyways. The story about being the light of the world comes immediately after the story, immediately following the story of Jesus and the adulterous woman who is about to be stoned by the Pharisees. They caught her in the act. It's not that she committed adultery, went home, felt bad about it, came back and confessed. They caught her in the middle of it. And yet Jesus has beautiful grace for her in that moment, telling the woman he does not condemn her, calling her to go and sin no more. There is grace for us in those moments too. I can think back on my lives and think of moments that hurt deeply in the moment, but I'm so grateful I got caught in a sin. Those are old journeys we've all walked. It is, a, it, is a, it is a grace of God often that we get caught up in our sin. Option number three is that we continue. We don't confess. We don't get caught. We keep living in the darkness. It's a bad path. The Bible has strong words of caution. Romans 1 and 2 paint a bleak picture of that life. When we live without confessing, when we don't rein it in, when we don't confess the sinful natures of our hearts, we risk a downward spiral where sin leads to sin and on and on until we're at a place we didn't think we could possibly end up. Don't hear me up here pointing a finger of condemnation or judgment. I don't speak from an elevated place. I speak as a sinner, someone who has to wrestle with these things in my own heart. But the truth is this. Jesus is the light of the world. It says in Luke 12 that there is nothing that is covered up that will not be revealed by that light. Nothing hidden that will be unknown. Paul gives us encouragement in 1 Thessalonians. He says, you are all children of the light and children of the day. You don't belong to the night or the darkness. 
Let that be true of us. Let us be people who, as we are formed by God, by his power, are able to walk out of the darkness and into light in our lives. The third thing, the last thing is this. Jesus, as the light of the world, takes us from empty to filled, from formless to formed, from dark to light, and from empty to filled. It's possible to enjoy things apart from God. An atheist can have a good day, right? Can sit down with a steak, enjoy it deeply, can watch a sunrise and be in awe, can hear a piece of music and have a transcendent experience, can have a fulfilling marriage, can have a deep and intimate connection with the spouse, can have good relationships. All of that is true. But all those things are only enjoyed or understood or experienced completely with Christ. See if you agree with me on this. You can enjoy an incredible steak dinner if you don't believe in God. But when we are connected to Christ, I think there is a higher level of enjoyment and meaning that comes out of that moment. It is only in a relationship with God that a steak dinner becomes a moment of worship, the recognition of God's goodness, the beauty of creation. I remember as a kid on hot days, especially on hot days when we'd been working out somewhere or doing some project on the yard, our dad would sometimes pile us into the van and we would go to 7-Eleven and we would get slushies and we would walk out into the hot sun and we would take a sip of that slushie. I always got some kind of swamp water combination, felt like you were getting bang for your buck if uh, you got more flavors. Dad always got something boring like Coke. But he would take that slushie and he would take that first sip and without fail, my dad would say after that first sip, ah, the nectar of the gods. <laughs> Every single time we got a slushy, that's what he would say. It's just sort of a silly thing to say. But in this weird way for me, as I grew up, uh, it became a, almost a worshipful experience for me. This is heaven's drink. This is a little taste, a little picture, a cold, icy drink on a hot day. This is a snapshot of what heaven will be like when we are walking in God's light, when we see things for what they really are. What it does is it gives us the ability to enjoy life in the context of a far bigger picture and a far bigger God. John 10.10, just a few chapters after this statement, this I am statement, uh, Jesus makes it clear. He says, although the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. God wants to give us a full life. We, this is the core problem with humanity, isn't it? We have a deep need inside of us, a desire, a longing, an emptiness, and we look for ways to fill that in all sorts of different places, but only God can do this. I remember being in Sunday school as a kid watching the video. Some of you my age and older might remember, I was thinking about singing it, but I'm actually just going to see if I can play it here. Can you turn this mic on for a second? I should have given this to you. This is going to be like 10 seconds here. I'm not playing the whole song. But I just want you to remember this with me. This, I, this might, I've played it for some people ahead of time. Some of them were like deeply affected by this nostalgic thing. The others, Mike was like, I've never heard this in my entire life. So we'll see if this connects with you or not. I've built this up a lot already. I haven't even told you what's going to happen now. This is, this is what I want to play. This is very exciting for me. Should I keep talking about it before I play? <laughs> 
Is there anything more that I can say about this song? Okay, here we go. Mr. Donut Man, why are you called the Donut Man? I guess I'd better sing it for you. Life without Jesus is like a donut, like a donut, like a donut. Life without Jesus is like a donut, cause there's a hole in the middle of your heart. If That's all, I just wanted to walk down memory lane with you a little bit in that moment. So who, who uh, grew up with the Donut Man? That would have been like late 80s, early 90s. Oh yeah, there's some hands out there. That's good. Yeah, no kidding. Good. I'm glad you're uh, keeping the tradition going. It's a cheesy song. Um, and I don't think it's totally fair to Donuts. But it does touch on the intuitive truth that I think everyone understands deep down. In some way, there is something within us that longs for more. That knows that this isn't all there is. That experiences the world and recognizes there has to be something more than what we see in front of us. When Jesus says, I am the light of the world, part of what he is saying is he wants to give us the life that we long for. To fill us with that same light. Paul prays so beautifully in Ephesians that we would understand God's love and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. So I want to, as we close, ask you again to prayerfully consider the question as we go from here. What did I learn today? What stuck out to me? What captured me? Jesus is the light of the world. He wants to bring us from formless to formed. He wants to take us from the dark into the light. He wants to bring us from empty to full. What piece of this is something that will help me to not just know about Jesus, but to know him better? Amen? Amen.